Welcome, everyone. Thank you to the audience for joining us. And thank you to the Knight Foundation for sponsoring this webinar series. I am Tracy Powell. I am founder and CEO of the Pivot Fund. At the Pivot Fund, we invest in and support BIPOC-led and serving community news media. Um, today, we have this fascinating and fabulous conversation with some esteemed guests focusing on the Pew research that recently came out about Black audiences and news consumption. Um, I have with me today Gary Pierre-Pierre, Ryan Sorrell, and, and Dana. Um, and, and I'm about to miss up your name, Dana. I'm here. There you go. There. Okay, great. I'm so glad I didn't mess up. But I just want to welcome them and thank them for joining us. Can you each just briefly say your name, where you live, and the name of your publication? Starting with Dana. Okay. I am Dana Amahir. I am uh, located in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, I am the founder executive director of Afro LA. Ryan. Yes, my name is Ryan Sorrell. I'm the founder and executive editor of the Kansas City Defender, and we're located in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, my name is Gary Pierre-Pierre. I'm the founder and publisher of the Haitian Times, based in Brooklyn, New York, but I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. Thank y'all so much, especially Dana waking up very, very early on the West Coast to join us this morning. Um, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, and as people, I know people are still joining us, but we want to get started because this is just really, really a uh, good conversation. And I know that an hour goes by really quickly. So the Pew study found that Black audiences aren't reading the stories about their communities that they like to read. It all still indicates that Black audiences prefer local news over national. And so this conversation will really be involved is including people who are reaching Black audiences with critical news and information. And so you are providing that information, that content that Black, black audiences, your Black audiences say they want and need. So I'm going to start off with Dana. One of the things that stood out about me, you know, Afro LA is still new-ish. It's been around for a couple of years. Um, but one of the things I read about you is that you you launched Afro LA um, really to provide critical news to Black communities in LA um, around data. And you said, I believe in one of your, if I misquote you, forgive me, but Black audiences want more than just pop culture. And I think that speaks volumes when you look at some of the more iconic larger national black platforms, they focus on entertainment, but you wanted to provide audiences with more than that. Can you talk a little bit about um, what motivated you to launch Afro LA and, and how you're reaching those audiences in a much different way than some of those other larger platforms? Sure, I'm happy to speak about that. Um, as I we have on our about page, kind of our backstory of Afro LA, um, we wrote that Afro-LA started from resistance and persistence. Um, I was mad when I started Afro-LA. I felt like I wasn't seeing in the community that I live in with millions of people and 300,000 Black people in Los Angeles that I wasn't seeing normalized narratives of how we live. Um, I wasn't seeing things shed in 99% of the time, any sort of positive light. And there was no nothing toward... Um, nothing past accountability other than someone did something wrong and let me list all the problems. And that's problematic for me. Um, and for a lot of people in the in the community that I live in, they're like, well, people have this certain perception of us because of what they're reading and what they're seeing. And it's really not like that. So I started Afro LA because I honestly, I thought I could do better than what I saw around me. And I wanted to do better for the people in my, um, in my community. Um, the way that we've really approached trying to ensure that we deliver that quality um, uh, quality content that goes beyond features and entertainment and food and pop culture is really, we started at the beginning just asking people, what do you want from us as your local news provider? We called it at the beginning an information needs assessment, but we since kind of 
couched it to more of like a news need survey so that it's a little bit more approachable. It is a simple, like seven minute little um, type form um, quiz or not quiz um, form that people can fill out. It's got a couple of short answer questions, but we ask them things um, to try and get to the heart of what it is that they want from us as a news provider. You know, what misconceptions do people have about our community? How do you think media coverage can be improved here? Like, where do you already get news and what do you like about it? And that informs how we have gone forward. We did that before we established any of our editorial priorities. And based on the responses that we got, um, I wrote about how people responded and what we were going to do about it. Our first major initiative was climate sustainability. We thought people wanted more K through 12 news. They wanted more about higher education. So we were wrong on some of our assumptions. And it's really helped define where we're going and who we are as a publication. I love that. I love that. Um, you know, so Dana talked about um, having her audience submit forms to let her to inform how the stories that they cover. Ryan, can you talk a little bit about uh, how you decide what stories are most important and most relevant to black communities in Kansas City? Uh, definitely. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of what Dana just mentioned resonates with me and with our platform for sure. I know for us, we are very active on Instagram specifically and also TikTok. And so we are constantly monitoring our engagement pretty much from our audience and from our community of like what comments are people making? What are people what's generally what's the conversation that's happening in our community and how can we uh, cover that? And so I think that is one piece, but also we have what we call community programs. And so our organization is essentially split into two wings. Like the first wing is what we call it is our editorial. And so that it comprises our social media platforms, our website, our email newsletter, our podcast, but we have an entire second wing that we call community programs. And within that we have three subcommittees, which one of those is called mutual aid. And in our mutual aid committee, we have a free clothing program. We have uh, a grocery buyout program where we raise money and we pull it out into cash and we go to black grocery stores and give direct cash to black people while they're checking out at the grocery line. And throughout all of that in-person interaction, we're talking to people and learning about people and learning about what kind of news and information they would want to see covered in our community or want to see covered differently. Um, and then the other two committees that we have, one is political education. Um, and yeah, so we, we use a lot of our community programs to organically, a lot of the discussions that we have in those community programs meetings are about things that are happening in the community. And so those kind of in-person aspects help us make sure that we're staying tapped into what people are talking about and care about. So you basically are meeting people where they are online and off and you're engaging in the, in the conversations which helps inform your coverage. Can you talk a little, little bit about how uh, Kansas City Defender is building and, and the same thing with Dana actually you're building on kind of the core mission of legacy black press starting with Freedom's Journal um, and how they um were there not only just to serve information through their news pages, but also help um, Black people, newly freed Black people and newly escaped Black people um, navigate their communities, navigate society. Can you talk about how you're building on that mission, but also innovating in ways that legacy Black press has struggled with and continues to struggle with today? Uh, for sure. Yeah, I think one of the pieces that Dana also mentioned that resonated with me was I started the Kansas City Defender in twenty in July of 2021, which, of course, is shortly after 2020, where I was doing a lot of on the ground organizing. And I was also very pissed off pretty much about everything that was happening and how it was being covered by legacy news outlets and non-black outlets, basically, and how our narratives were being misconstrued. And so I started to do before I started the Defender, I was doing a lot of research on what is the legacy of the black press, especially the radical black press. And we 
one of the main things I learned from looking at like the Chicago Defender, from the North Star, from Ida B. Wells, is that the Black press has always been a press of advocacy and has also been very rooted physically in our communities. And so we try to pull a lot of those elements of being unapologetic about our advocacy and the fact we are a pro-Black news outlet. That's an element we pull from history and from our ancestors, pretty much. And we also pull the um, in-person and on-the-ground grassroots community-building aspect from uh, previous Black news outlets that have come before us. Um, and that how we're innovating is, I think now, again, we're in the digital social media era where a majority of people get news and information, especially young people under the age of 30 get news and information on social media platforms, whether it's Instagram, TikTok. And so we are, I, at least, you know, when I'm curating a lot of the stories that we publish on our social platforms, I get a lot of inspiration from the outlets like The Shade Room or not like editorial uh inspiration, but more like aesthetic and how to actually package information in a way that resonates with young people. I get a lot of that inspiration from these like hip hop blogs and more like pop culture blogs that know how to reach young people. So we try to pull those more editorial elements from the history of the black press, but then we innovate it by incorporating a lot of these modern, innovative digital techniques. I think that's awesome. So Ryan and Dana have already gotten into discussing market segmentation, even within the black community. There's not the black community is not a monolith. There are black communities and different ways that both she and Ryan are, are serving those black communities. Um, Ryan mentioned TikTok and other social media platforms, which leads me to Gary, because Gary, the reason I really, really wanted you as part of this conversation is because um, you serve a black community, but it's not an African-American community. Your market segmentation is a black immigrant more specifically black Haitian immigrant community. Can you talk a little bit about the nuanced difference um, in serving African-American generally versus um, immigrant, specifically Haitian American communities? Uh, Thank you for having me, uh, Tracy. It's a pleasure to be here. I think uh, that's a very good question and one that's being explored now more than ever as a number of black immigrants are growing across the country, Haitians being one of the largest group that have immigrated here in recent years. And so the reason for the Haitian times, let me just speak a little bit, is because my uh, when I was a reporter in New York, uh, writing about the community for a, a small outlet in New York, and... <laughs> It, 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 <laughs> it uh, really uh, opened up my eyes as to where the Haitian community was at that point. It was when, when I was a kid, my parents came here. They were exiled, essentially. They sincerely wanted to go back to Haiti. 30 years later, they were still here. But there was no media outlet targeting my generation's needs. So I felt it was important to do so. And what was my generation's needs was that... We cared about Haiti, but we were very much an American. So the nuance that you were talking about here, Trace, is that there was no one really uh, feeding that need that we had to understand both the culture and our lives in America. We were now immigrants. And so the, the, the Haitian Times was founded with that to, 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 to be the guide of, 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 of the Haitian community that was emerging to where it is right now, because I kind of saw where we were heading. So I felt it was really important. And so why do black immigrants uh, care about that other people don't? Mostly we have the same needs, education, uh, public safety, uh, health care, all of that. But then we have to, to understand immigration law. This is something that affects us very uh, personally. And so uh, there are not that many outlets talking about uh, immigration now you do, but back in the uh, late 90s and early aughts, you didn't have that. And so black immigrants were faltering, if you will, not understanding uh, the nuances of living in America and how do you balance this dual identity. 
And so the Haitian Times, and there are many others as well. You have a lot of African uh, diaspora publications, and you have some Caribbean publications that are meeting a specific uh, group's needs. We just, uh, because we are uh, non-English speaking immigrants, and that adds another element to us, because we t- people tend to think of us as being aloof, if you will, but it's, it's, it's a matter of being, uh, feeling alone in a place where you're trying to adapt. And so you don't want to spread your wings too much. And so this is what we try to do at the Haitian Times, really tell people the story of Haitians in America and tell them the stories in Haiti because Haiti's middle class is a diaspora. It's a de facto middle class, if you will. And so it needs to understand what's happening in Haiti. So we, we, we play this duality in uh, our audience. And that's why our motto is bridging the gap, because there's always a gap somewhere, be it generationally, being uh, uh, geographically. And, and, and so that's what we do. And I want to make a, a follow-up on a point that Dana and, and Ryan have made about being uh, teetered to your audience. I think a lot of publications lost that, what they were. And I think it's really important right now. You know, we just finished up, finishing up about a, a 10 city tour because the Haitian community is no longer New York and Florida. It's, 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 it's Atlanta. It's Houston. It's Philadelphia. It's spreading out. It's in the Midwest. I mentioned earlier, I live in Indianapolis. So this is the fastest growing community. So we have to. Uh, uh, stay abreast of the changes and the nuances and the differences because, you know, it's interesting because I'm saying Haitians, but a Haitians in Georgia, you know, is like a Georgian. A Haitians in, 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 in Philadelphia is like, they love the Eagles. Crazy. I don't understand why, but, you know, so, and we have to stay connected, understanding each of these local communities because we are the, the publication that's bridging the gap, that's holding everyone together. And this is the, what people have told us they want us to be for them, to be able to provide them not just in the news, but other things, information, particularly about immigration and how it affects them. I think that's deep in the genesis of the Black press, too, the Black press in the U.S. It's, it's, and that's what binds us together. Um, the reasons for why we exist in a lot of cases, why we exist in the first place. Um, I want to go back to Dana real quick. Dana, you have a really specialized background around data. Can you talk to us a little bit about cold black media and also talk a little bit about how you are doing this, but how other small local newsrooms can effectively gather and utilize data to strengthen their coverage and impact? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry, I'm losing my voice a little bit. So, yes, um, before I started Afro LA, um, I started Code Black Media. I was an independent freelancer. That's how I was paying my bills. Um, Code Black Media is a um, digital media and data consultancy. So essentially, I was choosing the things that I wanted to do that fit my um, wheelhouse of data um, design and diversity. Um, And that has informed a lot how... I have gotten how I have integrated technology and data um, into Afro-LA. So I do have a lot of experience, but to steer away from some of the technical, I think that part of that data background has really um, informed how and why we're a solutions journalism newsroom. Um, One of the four pillars of solutions journalism is evidence which is essentially data to support your insight on a response to a social problem. So in a lot of ways, or in many ways, most of what we do is data-driven in some way. It may not be, um, you know, crunching numbers on a spreadsheet or some big data analysis, but it may be trying to humanize a particular data point so that you see it, a statistic as more than numbers, and you see the people who are affected behind it the people who are living that reality and trying to um, convey that to the greater community that, hey, this is something people are going through. It is something that we can either learn from or something that we need to hold somebody accountable because this is not, this is a bad situation for them. Um, So I think that that data grounding, that solutions journalism grounding, it makes us a little bit different in our landscape. Um, Most people do not think of Los Angeles as a as hurting for news because we're so large. Uh, but I feel like we have 
been able to kind of make an inroad and make a niche for ourselves um, in in coverage because we're not like swimming in news organizations necessarily. We kind of there are a lot of us, but compared to how big our place is, where it's not. Um, so I feel like we've been able to make inroads with quality, like solutions, journalism, data-driven journalism. These people are hungry to learn more about their communities in a way that's less surface. They want wide, but they also want deep. They want context. They want to be able to pick up a new story on Wednesday without having followed it on Monday and Tuesday and still understand what the situation is, what the impact is. Um, I mean, we see a lot of people with news avoidance these days. And I feel like trying to um, integrate like how people's lived experiences are playing out through data um, to help them realize that, oh, okay, that that's that's happening to you. That's happening to me too. So how how are how are you responding to it? How um, how can we all respond to it? I think making that um, bridging that gap to to borrow from from uh, uh, from Gary for a second is really about helping people understand that we're not so different um, and that we are we are black communities. We are not monolithic. We're all going through very different specific things. We have different specific needs, but we are united in in many ways and we can help each other. We can help solve problems for each other if we are able to um, if we're able to connect those dots together. And I think that data is one of those things that really helps us get there. And I think we're doing it in a way that a lot of the press around us is not. It's like a a one-off for them. But this is this is what we do. This is what we try to do in every story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dana, I want to follow up real quick. Um, is what you do, or do you see what you do as supplemental or additive to coverage from other? Black-led, Black-serving news outlets in L.A.? Um, do you share your content with with those outlets? And I guess, how has, as the new newest organization on this panel, how has your organization been received by the more legacy organizations in Los Angeles? Okay, let me tackle the couple of the, the, the few parts in there. Um, so to start with, um, in terms of, how Afrolay has been received. I feel like it's been some mixed results. Um, I mean, definitely when I first started, um, when we launched online and started interacting with people on social media, I got trolled. I get personally got trolled um, by uh, some folks who have been here for a while. I assume that they born and raised, but they, they were not uh, to couch it, they were not happy with me because they said, "Well, you know, you're not LA. You're you're a you're transplant here. You're not from here. You can't possibly understand, and you're you're not black enough because you know you're not married to someone who's black." And I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Like, hold up, hold up! Like, I being dedicated to what I do and not saying that I'm coming in trying to build trust. I'm not coming, taking, and leaving." Like that's if you want to really know who we are and who I am, watch what I do. Don't don't just listen to what I say. And we're still here um, as having been called a colonizer, a gentrifier and a corporate journalist um, in public spaces. I'm like, you know what? Year plus later, we're still here doing the work, trying to gain trust, trying to help people understand that you don't have to accept what you're getting from um, some of the other um outlets in town you can you can have more you can have more than just oh we covered this event and it's but it's over now and i'm reading about it like three days later we we purposefully we don't do breaking news and we don't do event coverage at least not in the traditional sense because the whole idea is we want to contextualize um and provide insight into what's happening in our communities and saying that x happened but not telling you why x is important or how x impacts you is hollow. Um, so in that sense, I've had some mixed reactions from folks. Uh, you notice my voice is cracking a little bit saying that. Um, so some of the more legacy folks are were not particularly pleased with me because they said that I wasn't, that I, that I wasn't, essentially what it boiled down to is not like, following the rules, like following the model. 
and minimizing how they were approaching news, which is totally not. I believe that all of us serve very, um, very important functions just in different ways. I've just chosen to embrace certain aspects of of news and media that aren't as as prioritized by them. And that's OK. We can all exist here together. Um, so in, in terms of your question about collaboration, um, I have not collaborated specifically with any black press here. Not that I wouldn't. Um, one of the first things I said when we launched is like, we're hungry for opportunities to serve the community. And if that means we can do it better together with someone, then okay. Um, what in terms of um, sharing our content, one thing that I was really specific about when we started is that you can't republish our content without permission. I know that there are a lot of places that open it up and say, yeah, steal our stuff and that sort of thing. I purposefully did not do that in this space because I felt like what I was seeing even before we we had published content and working in in other newsrooms is that republic they would republish content from um ethnic media because they refu- they weren't covering those communities and I'm like I'm not going to be your shortcut because you refuse to go into that community and be have meaningful coverage I'm not going to be your shortcut to make inroads in that community because you only show up when there's a shooting or something bad happens. And then you take, you you extract, and then you leave and nobody ever sees you again. I'm not going to help you harm the community that I'm a part of. So um, there have been some really good collaborations that we've had. Um, one outlet that does republish our content is um, All of Us or None, which is a newspaper from the, I want to make sure I get this right, Legal Fund for Prisoners with Children. Uh, le- wait, no, Legal Services for Prisoners with Children. I don't know. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's a grassroots group that helps um, the families of incarcerated folks as well as incarcerated people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to kill me because I got that acronym wrong. But uh, the bottom line is we've republished content with them. And some of the things when they reached out to us, they reached out to a lot of newsrooms. They said we we're the only ones who responded back in, mm-hmm. in the area. The only ones. And she they sent me a copy of their paper and said that, you know, hey, would you be willing to use anything we've got? And I'm like, well, a lot of it's a little editorially, but we took something that people were talking about that some of the incarcerated folks who were writing for them were, were talking about. And we reported on it for weeks. And what we did is we came back to some of the people who were mentioned in the story. I'm like, well, can we talk to you? So we got on JPay, um, the, the app to be able to talk with incarcerated folks. Our reporter talked to a dozen people and they wanted to talk to us so badly that they were willing to spend money out of their commissary to make those conversations happen because you have to pay both ways. And we, when I found out about that, I'm like, no, 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 no. You're not going to pay to have your story told. So we put money in their accounts. And then I paid one of the incarcerated folks. He's an artist. So I paid him to draw art for us, for our story. And then we wrote separately about how that collaboration worked. So we're ma- we're collaborating just in a little more unconventional ways than I think people are used to seeing. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. Um, Ryan, back to you. Um, first of all, you as the second newest organization on this panel, how were you received when you launched in a in a city that had legacy black press? Also, how were how were you received? Um, and then I have a quick follow-up question um, after you answer. Uh, yeah, yeah. we also, I would say, got some mixed uh, reception when we first started. I know that I was hoping that we could, like when we first came in, I was really hoping that we could partner and like collaborate with some of the legacy Black news outlets that existed at the time they just like didn't really seem interested or something. Or I know that we have also like, we very strongly prioritize distributing our information and engaging on like Instagram and TikTok, like I've mentioned. And I know a lot of people just kind of like haven't transitioned to understanding that as like legitimate sources of news and information and even journalism. And so I think they were kind of like looking down on us originally a little bit. It's kind of how it felt. Uh, but over time, and there was actually a situation where one of them, we reported on a story that for some time people were like saying was fake news pretty much, which uh, I've talked about the story a couple of times, but it was 
it's still an ongoing case, but we had a, a legitimate serial killer here in Kansas City that was targeting black women. And when we reported on the story initially, uh, it basically spread like super fast across the city and even nationally. And then three days later, our police department came out and basically said, this is, well, they literally said, this is completely unfounded rumors and there's no basis to support these claims. And every single news outlet, including the black news outlets, which was the disappointing aspect about it, because my hope and thinking was that we could have, as black news outlets, like we should be trying to like work together in situations where the police are trying to uh, discredit a black news outlet, but instead all pretty much all the majority of the news outlets in the area, uh, like kind of listened to the police. And then a month later, it turned out that everything we said was legitimate and verified. And uh, me and one of the editors actually got an argument under a cheesecake picture on their Instagram. <laughs> so it was, but then, that was kind of just like the uh, peak of us not like getting along. But then we ended up after that conversation, we ended up, uh, having like a much better relationship. And now uh, we actually have like a formal partnership with the uh, Black News Outlet, the Kansas City Call here, because they recently got new leadership. And pretty much as soon as the new leadership came in, they reached out to us on the very first day and said that they wanted to partner with us pretty much. And so we, every single, because they still publish physical uh, print papers, and so they, they actually have an entire section for us where we uh, get to publish with them every single week when they print and they publish stuff on our uh, website also. So I think it, it has definitely been an evolution in terms of how the how our relationship has been and our reception. But now I would say now we're actually even connecting with uh, the Black News Outlet Community Voices uh, we're in conversation with, we're talking to the Kansas City Call with uh, Cascade Media is another black news outlet here. Right now, we're actually trying to form a black media collective in the area. Um, so, yeah, I would say it's definitely very positive right now. Yeah, that's sweet. I was going to check in. So my follow up question, I know that there's there are three black led news outlets in Kansas City, including yours, that formed a collaboration. So I was just going to check in and find out how that was going. What fascinates me the most about that is that it's all run by three black men. Um, and I think I even talked to black, black men vote about this collaborative and reaching out to you all. But I think I want to follow up on that in, a, in our, one of our future newsletters. Cause I think that's a really interesting collaboration that you have. I would love to know. It sounds like it's going, it's going well. Definitely. Yeah. And yeah, we're actually, Hoping to, I've been talking to, uh, like I said, I've, I've talked to Community Voices and we're still just having conversations, which they're on the Kansas side and they're also in Wichita. And I would also, uh, hoping to talk more to St. Louis America and also, because I think it would just be very powerful if all of the black news outlets across Missouri and Kansas could be in some type of like partnership and collective. Uh, so that's definitely something that we're hoping to do. Awesome. Awesome. And, and, and get, I think this is something that black legacy should be interested in. They, um, I think especially the young black men that are leading the, the current collaborative can certainly show them a new path, a new way, a way to evolve, um, and become better connected to audiences and serve the audiences in their, in their distinct communities. So I want to go to, to Gary, been a little quiet, um, last few minutes. Um, first and foremost, let me ask you this question, piggybacking on, on something that Ryan hit on. Um, how do you, as a veteran, cause you know, Gary is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from the New York Times. Um, but as a veteran on this panel, do you believe, um, what short, let me ask, ask it this way. What short and long-term adjustments do you believe black legacy media can make to become more um, relevant to their communities, um, more um, 
ways that they can uh, evolve and become better um, digitally connected to communities and especially emerging black communities such as um, black immigrants in the U.S.? Well, I think, uh, you know, Dana and Ryan are on it. It's about connecting with your audience. It's about constantly listening. It's that uh, feedback loop and understanding the needs of the audience. And also understanding that every 10 years or so, there's a major shift. And so we, uh, we uh, legacy media, whatever you want to call it, media in general, to be quite honest, we need to be uh, on top of the audience and, and understanding the audience's needs and, and desires because ultimately it's about them. And, and if you're not in sync with the audience, uh, you, you don't have a business. Uh, uh, too often, you know, uh, editors uh, and those of us, those who went to journalism schools, we have a definition of news. But that has shifted. That has evolved, and we need to evolve and know exactly how do uh, audience feel about the news. In fact, uh, Dana mentions. Can I interject one just real quick? Because what Ryan was talking about wasn't necessarily about the the shift in journalism. What he was talking about was this story that the Kansas City Defender broke about um, black women who were being murdered in his community and the legacy black paper, though it's changed now and is under new leadership. At the time, the legacy black newspaper went along with the, the line coming out of the police department rather than pushing back against power and holding that that law enforcement entity accountable, they went along with the get along. I'm asking you, Gary, um, have has there been have we forgotten what the original mission of the black press was and still is? Have we gotten complacent? Um, are we no longer um Comforting the afflicted, and what's the name? What's the phrase? Uh, you know, what was the phrase from "We comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable"? What was the, what was the thing? Comfort the y'all know what I'm talking about, <laughs> right? That was the original black. That was the original mission of the Black Press. Have have has legacy forgotten, or is legacy just so strapped and stretched that they can no longer be that? And now uh, there's a need for them to to collaborate with the with, with the, the defenders and the Afro LAs. Well, yeah, I mean, I think collaboration is something that we all should consider seriously, and I just pay lip service to it. I think uh, in this case of in in Kansas City, I mean, uh, Ryan knows it a lot more, but I'm I'm, I'm putting my journalist hat on. You know, and thinking like, okay, so if I don't have the goods, what do I do? Ryan did. So that was a difference. So he knew that his information was solid and he stood behind it. But if I'm coming in without having the information that he has, I don't know if I'll go out of the limb and, 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 and put my reputation such as it is on the story. So that, that's, that's something else. But I think the, the, the problem is, is that in the past, the black papers like Ryan would have that story first. They would have the pos- Ryan's posture. So I think this is where, you know, and, and I don't want to paint the whole uh, black legacy media uh, into in, in, into the, the, the same brush. It, it's just like they don't have the, the, the connection because, again, we're not talking about this. We mentioned that uh, gentrification. Well, that has changed a lot. So... You know, if you go to Central Brooklyn, for instance, I mean, it's it's going a, a, a strong uh, uh, transformation. And so uh, our time press is no longer a dominant voice there because the, 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 the demographic has changed. And so, again, we have to identify. That's why I go back to be in sync with the audience. I think that's a key because the technology is moving so fast. And and that only the, the the audience will tell you, you know, they'll tell you, you know, you know, when they're on TikTok, when they leave TikTok, when they're on Instagram, because something else is coming. Now we're in a world of AI where what is to come, we don't know, but we have to be really ready. We have to be nimble. And I think 
organizations like Ryan's and Dana's are, and there's more really nimble for that. And that's they're what more I nimble. you know they they they, they can really uh, pivot. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, to whatever <laughs> that. It, is, <laughs> it is that you know the the, the needs are because they're not going to be the same. Because you know we went from the the internet to social media, not to AI, and each one of them, I think we've. The last two, we were behind. And I think now it's an opportunity for us to be there in the beginning and to design the, the, these models that will benefit us based on what we need, not let the tech companies throw something at us and then try to adapt to, to, to that technology. No, it should be the other way around. So I'm going I'm to give Dana and Ryan an opportunity to help get Gary off the, the hook after <laughs> we... I'm not, we're, this is not a bad, it's not bashing legacy, but I would, I do want to better understand, you know, how that we, we can collaborate with one another. Um, but I want to give Dana and Ryan an opportunity to respond to that before I completely let Gary off the, off the hook. I will respond. Um, Gary, I think you come from a good place. I do. I do. Um, I mean, talking about my initial relationship with um, other black press in the area. And I do want to clarify that the folks who were coming for me were not from established black press. They were more like black news bloggers, whatever. Um, The black press itself has been a little bit more indirectly cold. Um, So um, the black press, are you talking about legacy? Yes. So Um, they've been a little cold. A little bit, yeah. I'm like, there have been opportunities where we could have definitely done something together and been stronger together, but it was definitely clear that I was not necessarily, I wasn't pushed out, but I wasn't necessarily welcome either. I've never felt welcomed by those um, outlets. And I think um, that was definitely confirmed having uh, worked with some legacy outlets that were from um, other places than LA. I'm in a, a Black Press HBCU cohort with the Solutions Journalism Network right now. And one of our first days of training was um, a gentleman who leads a uh, a legacy um, uh, black press organization in the Midwest. I'm not going to call him out, but um, he was very accusatory in the sense that he's like, you know, y'all startups um, are the reason that we don't we're not able to fundraise in this. We're not making money in the same way we were. And I'm like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Like, I am not the reason you are not making money. I have less money than you do. Um, like the, the wells are just drying up in the post George Floyd, like white guilt age here. We're all suffering here. And I'm just now getting into the game and I'm not even getting the remnants of it. At least you got something. The issue is that you're not willing to change your model. You're not willing to go out on a limb and say, Hey, what I've been doing isn't working anymore and to evolve and to adapt. And I think that's the tension that I honestly have with legacy media. It's that. I embrace technology. I embrace it in a way that they don't. Um, I think that, yeah, there's a place for print. But I mean, when you start realizing that one of the main reasons you're losing subscribers is death, um, you got to do something. Uh, and I, I say that a little crassly because when I was at a different paper, they, without, death was the third leading cause of subscriptions um, declining. And I'm like, does that not tell you something? That perhaps you should evolve. But um Really, I think that it's we have to move from um, I don't think everybody has to be a nonprofit startup. Definitely not. You can definitely be for profit. But if you're going to be for profit and um, succeed right now, you have to do what your where you have to go where your audience is going. And you can't just you can't rely on some of the pieces of old models like advertising. Advertising is declining for everybody. So you can't necessarily kind of sit back and hope that you're going to keep getting um not even subsidies, but having opportunities to make money from advertising or sponsored content or that sort of thing. It's like people want actual like quality news reporting stories. Like you can't give them like um, content churn like you would find on social media because it's not meaningful. Um, And like you said, from the Pew Research, people want local news. They want information about their communities, like news you can use. They want something that's going to inform their lives. And I think that's the disconnect that I have with some of the places that are already here. I'm trying really hard to meet people where they are and not just assume what they want. Our tagline is unapologetic Black Los Angeles. And part of that is listening to what people are telling us. It's 
not assuming what you want, like the five things you need to know. Well, what do I know? I don't live in your neighborhood. What you tell me what you need. So I think that it's sort of like having to adapt to models that are already here and then try new things that haven't been tried before and create a new model out of it. Um, but being experimental, I think is that's the chasm that I have with some of the other organizations in place. But I feel like I do, we, I do we think have, there is a reluctant reluctance yeah. to evolve and change the business model. And that's part of why there's a, such a disconnect, not just with black legacy, but legacy generally. Um, Absolutely. And so um, Mr. Innovator of the Year, Ryan Sorrell, um, he received that distinction um, from the Institute for Nonprofit News a year ago, I believe. And so um, maybe you can talk a little bit about ways um, that you are innovating in serving as a role model to, to legacy Black press in Kansas City so that they too can, um, I, I would say Kansas City helps Kansas City defenders stay ahead of the curve, but helping to bring up some of the legacy organizations that you've mentioned. Uh, yeah, which I think um, I can definitely share about that. But I also I would say that there's like still a lot of things that we like want to learn from and can learn from legacy outlets because like we we reach young people, most like over 60 percent of our audience is under the age of 30. But there's still like my grandma reads our email newsletter or like there's a lot of like middle aged and older people who read our especially our website and newsletter, our email newsletter product. And there's like a lot more older black people, like anytime we're out in the community and we talk to older black people, they're like super, super excited about what we're doing and creating and the type of stories that we're covering. But we just like don't have as much knowledge and experience about how to, or like where to engage middle-aged and older black people. And so that, for us, we're going into our relationship and partnership and collaborations with the Legacy Black Outlets here, offering our like ability uh, to to help them better reach young audiences, and then they're coming into the relationship helping us better be able to reach like middle aged and older audiences. So Give me I think, an example. Give me an example of which how you learn from each other in that way. Uh, yeah, for us, I would say it's like the actual content of the stories that we're writing about. And so that could be like the angles of things. Like we just recently, um, we just recently talked to like, did a very analysis, uh, like kind of op-ed editorial piece on the shooting that happened here recently. Uh, the, the mass shooting that happened at the Super Bowl parade. And like, rather than just covering like the breaking news aspect of it because the two young men who like were the shooters in the situation were both young black men. And like, there was a lot of talk that it could have been like gang related or something like that. And so we ended up pinning an editorial, basically saying how that like, there's already lots of fake news and misinformation going around on the internet about who the perpetrators were and some people were even saying it was like an illegal immigrant and stuff like that. And, and just like all kind of racist stuff that they were saying. And so we wrote an analysis piece basically that was just like very pointed about and how, how we think it's dangerous. A lot of the discourse that's happening and how it could be dangerous for, for black people and young black men, especially if uh, a lot of these news outlets keep discussing the shooting in the way that they have. And so that was a piece that resonated with uh, the Kansas city calls audience is what, that's what they told me. And then I think for us, what I've just been learning is like a lot of people go to the call to see like events that are happening in the community or uh, things like education or uh, reparations is like a huge thing that a lot of like middle aged and older black people in our community are talking about right now, especially since we just established the first reparations commission in our city history last year. And so just like talking 
with the Kansas City call. Uh, like we, I've been able to learn those things about like different things that we can cover or different news products we can add. And we've been sharing like how we use social media and a lot of the di- different strategies and stuff that we use on social media to be able to reach young people. So I know that we have less than 10 minutes left in this conversation. I want to invite the audience to submit more questions um, while they're doing that. Gary, I want to turn to you um, once again to talk a little bit about, again, that kind of um, um, we were talking earlier about print. And I think Ryan mentioned the reliance on the print product earlier. But what's one of the things that you learned? In your 25, I think Haitian Times have been around for 25 years. Yeah, this right? year, but we're turning 25. 25, congratulations. So um, one of the things that you learned, we were talking about, you know, th- your particular audience still really wanting that print and how you, what lesson you learned and how you learned it. Well, um, in 2012, unfortunately, we had to shutter the weekly publication, a print publication, well, Fortunately, perhaps, uh, because uh, the, the advertising landscape I just cratered. Um, we just did one, the last edition we printed with no advertising, uh, paid advertising. And um, I just called it in and kept and, and kept the uh, print, uh, the, the website, which we've had since the beginning. But now I would say our audience has never been bigger. But if you go in central Brooklyn and southeast Queens uh, or New Jersey, people still ask me, what happened to the paper? And that question was so nagging to me that we decided to print a monthly, we started as a quarterly newsletter about immigration, you know, because uh, as I mentioned earlier, that's top of mind for uh, immigrants with large uh, and Haitians, no different. And so we provide what we Thank, uh, quality information, accurate information, because we all know about the disinformation world that exists. It's bigger than we are. And so we, we focus on immigration because people, the, uh, the internet is, 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 is great. The technology has really done a lot for us, but to a certain audience like black audience or Latino audience as well, uh, immigrant audience in general, um, like, the physical contact with with a, with a paper and and it it gives it a certain amount of credibility, you know, uh, when they when they see the print. But I'm not going to go back to printing a weekly uh, newspaper that that model left. But you know, we had to adjust and and, and provide a, a product that we think works for everyone. And 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 the newsletter print newsletter has been wonderful. Thank you for that. We do have a question. I want to make sure we answer it. Dana, it's for you, actually. It says, can you talk about your journey transitioning into a full-time role at your newsroom and how long you kept a job during the process? Yeah, this one is, I get this one a lot. So Code Black Media never stopped. Um, I just added something to it. So um, I currently have two other full well, a full-time job and a part-time job in addition to Afro-Lay. I am our only full-time employee at Afro-Lay, but I'm the only volunteer, um, full-time volunteer. We pay contributors um, as freelancers and contractors because I can't afford to um, have salaried employees yet. Um, but yeah, I still have a full-time freelancing job. I have anywhere between like two to four clients at a time. And I teach as well. Um, until August, I've been teaching uh, at Berkeley remotely for a couple years. Um, it's like the fourth university I've taught at. I've been teaching for like nine years and I didn't want to give it up. Um, and to supplement income um, when I uh, wasn't able to teach there anymore, I teach two extracurricular courses for a high school uh, in the Valley. Um, so podcasting and photography. So yeah, I, at any given time, I usually have three jobs. Oh, wow. so that's, another distinct, that's another distinction for Publishers of color, particularly black publishers, we often have multiple jobs um, trying to hold down the fort. Yeah, it's how um, I, I yeah. made no money from Afro Lay. Afro Lay actually owes me money. So, 
Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. That's an and that's an important point. Um, go to the next question because I know we're coming down close to time. Um, I think TikTok is seen as a young person's platform. We all know that's not the case. What other misnomers about audience engagement do you see in the industry? And I'll I'll throw that to Ryan. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would. I think that the culture of TikTok is like young, especially how it started. I think the demographic has shifted over the last like two or three years to like where now a lot more middle aged and older people are on the platform. But I think to me, one of the biggest, I don't know if I would call it a misnomer, but just like something that I've one thing that I learned as I've been like experimenting on our social platforms is to like understand the culture of different platforms and the demographics that are on those platforms and like the different kind of slang and stuff that you can use on different platforms. And so for us, our Twitter audience is like, like more scholarly and like academic and like producers and journalists and professional. Whereas our Instagram is like a bunch of high schoolers and like college students and stuff. And so like we can, we use slang like all the time on our Instagram, but we would never really do that on like our Twitter or our email newsletter. And so I think just knowing the different cultures of the different platforms, I think is really important. And the other quick piece I would add is, uh, or a recommendation that I think has been helpful for me is like looking at, to me, I read a lot of like creator, like social media creator uh, people, because I think that they have the best strategies for how to package information on social media platforms. And so I learn a lot from social media creators and I just apply the same strategies that they use to our news platform. Thank you for that. So in the last three minutes, we have two and a half minutes. Um, just want to give you all an opportunity to have your final say before we depart. And then I have a um, one thing from the chat that I'll bring to the forefront. Dana, we started with you. How do you want to end? Um, I think the, the last thing that I want to end on um, is just that, you know, we don't have to accept what has been necessarily considered the black press as we enter the the space like me and ryan as startups that there's really there's room for all of us like we're all trying to navigate the fact that journalism is not what it was 20 years ago 30 years ago you know 40 years ago or like five years ago so we're all trying to navigate this new space and i think that um we have to do a better job of supporting one another as part of the same media community, this black media community, but at the same time, willing to learn more, willing to learn from each other as well um, in order to better serve all of our audiences. Thank you, Dana. Ryan, your uh, last yeah. word. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to say thank you again for inviting me on here and uh, just forgetting to learn from you all. And yeah, I think it's just a pretty exciting time. I definitely would agree with Dana. I think it's very, very important, especially we're in an election year. I think there's like a lot of very problematic and crazy things happening in the country right now. And so I think black media, especially black media, that is like saying things that other platforms are not saying. I think that couldn't be more important than it is right now. So I'm just excited that we're being able to have spaces like this. Thank you so much, Ryan. And finally, but not least, Gary Pierre Pierre, the Haitian Times. Uh, again, thank you for having me. And I, I feel inspired, you know, when I listen to uh, Ryan and Dana and many other young people who've done what I did 30, 25, 27 years ago. Uh, to, to, to go out on your own. I think, you know, it's exciting. Uh, it's going to be tough, but stay the course. Uh, it, it, you will be rewarded for your efforts. Um, just don't, just don't give up. And, you know, I went to Florida and m HBCU. And one of the things that I, one of the takeaways I got out of four wonderful years was that, you know, 
we have to build our own institutions. And this is what I was granted. This is one of the things that pushed me to, to, to leave mainstream media and, and, and start um, a local ethnic publication because it was necessarily, um, if I, if not me, no one would. And, and I'm glad that now it, I'm not an outlier anymore. I am the trend. And what we're doing, and it's really positive, as Ryan said, we're going through some stuff in this country. And so we have to be really uh, have a level head. And I think uh, these two represent what the future is or the present, and it's bright. On that note, that's a perfect way to wrap up this important conversation. I want to thank the audience again for joining us. Thank you to our panelists for such an insightful and relevant conversation. And thank you to our sponsor, the Knight Foundation, for hosting and um, sponsoring this important conversation. Um, the Pivot Fund is is honored to have all of you. And we respect and um, love all of you and really deeply appreciate the work that each one of you, Legacy and uh, Startup, uh, is doing in supporting the information needs of Black audiences across the country. Thank you and good day. Thank you.